0: Is the desire to run hardwired into our DNA, or is it an industry-driven phenomenon? That question is exposed in the book Born to Run. Welcome to ReachMD Book Club. I'm your host, Dr. John Russell, and I'm joined by the author, Christopher McDougall, of Born to Run, a hidden tribe, super athletes, in the greatest rates that the world has never seen. Christopher, welcome.
1: Oh, good, John. i look looking forward to it.
0: How did you get interested in the science of running to start with? You know, it was strictly by accident
1: because at the time I wasn't a runner. I'd given up on running years earlier, and not that I was much of a runner to begin with. I was just a normal kind of plotter trying to sweat off a few pounds every couple of days. But I happened to be down in Mexico, and I was looking through a Mexican travel magazine, and I saw a picture of what looked to me like some old man in a dress running in a pair of these gladiator sandals. And the caption said that he was a 55-year-old Tata Umada Indian runner, and he had won a 100-mile race through the Rocky Mountains. And I'm looking at this and thinking, oh, wait a second. 55-year-old don't win races. Nobody can run 100 miles, and especially not in those goofy things on his feet. And that's what really got me intrigued at the start of the whole expedition.
0: So how easy was it to track down the Tarahumara? <laughs> well, I guess I should have thought about the fact that if they were
1: easy to find, I probably would have heard of them sooner. Uh, they're, they're, they're a reclusive tribe. They've been hiding uh, down in the bottom of this network of canyons in northwestern Mexico for the past 400 years. They've essentially been in isolation
0: since the Conquistadors arrived. So why do they run? Why is the tribe is running so much part of their lives?
1: You know, originally I assumed that they were the aberrations, that they were the kind of mutants and that the rest of us were normal. And what I found is the opposite. By digging into the Tatumata's own culture and history and then really starting to find out what was happening with anthropology and physiological research. You know, what what I discovered is that humans survived as long-distance runners for most of our existence. You know, we tend to think of whatever we are doing like that's what we've always done. And it's not true. For nearly two million years, we had a much different lifestyle. And for most of that span, our only natural weapon in the wilderness was our ability to run long distances on a hot day. We are, as a species, the greatest long-distance runners on the planet.
0: So you, in your book, you talk a lot about ultra marathoners So, you know, one marathon is not enough. Um, where what's kind of the, the motivation for the people who are doing ultramarathons? And can you talk a little bit about ultramarathons as a construct?
1: Right. When I first went into this, when I first saw that picture and read about a guy running 100 miles, you know, I'm thinking, wait a second. You know, I always read that Pheidippides died, you know, and, and when he ran to Athens, you know, 26.2 miles was the ultimate challenge. So how is this guy, this geriatric, doing four marathons in one day? And what I came to discover is that running long distances is not really that much uh, different than what most humans have done most of our lives. When we were living as hunter-gatherers, you know, our ancestors would set off on a persistence hunt where they would run another animal to death. And sometimes that run would take four, five, or six hours. But the big difference is you know, we have this fascination with speed. We try to do everything as fast as possible. But humans are not fast. You know, Usain Bolt is the fastest human in history. Usain Bolt couldn't catch a squirrel if he had to. But what we're really good at is a kind of running called surge and recover. And most people who run ultramarathons, who do races of 100 miles or 150 miles, they run for a while, they stop and rest and recover and, and run again. And, and that kind of surge and recover style of running is much more in keeping with the natural efficiency of our bodies.
0: So when you look at these people who can run 100 miles, kind of how their, their foot actually hits the pavement or the, or the dirt road, is it different than kind of the traditional kind of running that you and I started to do in gym classes?
1: You know, that's the key word right there, traditional. You know, things have become so topsy-turvy in the past 30 or 40 years that we've taken something that was once unnatural and now we look at it as traditional. What I mean by that is if you take your shoes off right now, and run across the parking lot, a hard asphalt parking lot, you will land on the balls of your feet. You will land either the balls of your feet or your midfoot. You won't land on your heel for a simple reason. That heel is all rounded bone. It's very painful to land on that heel on a hard surface. For most of our existence, we didn't have cushioned running shoes, so we didn't land on our heels. But in the 1970s, you know, we created these big, cushioned, motion-controlling shoes And we now sort of assume that those are what's normal and traditional. And actually, they're not. Those are the innovation. The normal traditional way for humans to run is for them to land on their midfoot and gently bend their knees to all the shock absorption through their joints.
0: So what do you think is leading to uh, injuries in runners? I think you wrote, you know, it's a fairly high percentage of of regular runners who actually have an injury in a given year.
1: It's kind of startling that... When you sort of peel back all the hype around running products, in particular running shoes, you realize, boy, they really haven't done anything. Um, you know, running shoes have been selling like hotcakes since the 1970s, and there's really only two functions for a running shoe. They should make you run either run faster or prevent injuries. That's the only reason you would invest $150 in a pair of shoes for running. They it should accomplish one and hopefully both of those two functions. Well, as it turns out they don't accomplish either one the running injury rate has not dropped at all per capita since the 1970s. So the same percentage of people is getting hurt now as they were 30, 40 years ago. So all this technology, all this investment in running shoes has yielded net zero. It hasn't helped us at all. And I think actually on the contrary, what it has done is we've once again tried to outsource technique and made it a question of purchasing rather than learning something we keep trying to buy something. So the message has been, "Hey, run however the hell you want. You know, be as sloppy as you want, but just buy a better shoe." And the real lesson is, forget the shoe. Learn how to use your body, and then decide what shoe you want.
0: And then, and then there were always, you know, you have to replace your shoes after so many miles of things. And and I think you're and right, you right know, that that's guys, not that's true. All,
1: that is all just marketing hype. None of that has any bearing. In the science, what's there, the whole thing about rotate your shoes every 500, you know, the funny thing about that is if you look at 300 to 500 miles, what that you know, yields out to in terms of time, that's roughly the equivalent of about six months, which is exactly when running shoe companies roll out the new product line.
0: You're listening to Reach MD Book Club. I'm John Russell, and we're speaking with Christopher McDougal, author of Born to Run. So I think it's very interesting when you kind of go back in time to the hunter-gatherers and kind of running down prey that distance, runners, distance running was really how we survived.
1: It's a funny thing. You know, we tend to think of ourselves as being these sort of heavily armed masters of the, of the universe out there with our bows and arrows and clubs. But when you look at the timeline Projectile weapons are a relatively new uh, innovation. You know, we only developed projectile weapons in the past 200,000 years, but we've been on the planet for 2 million years. So, for you know, 1,800,000 years, we're somehow killing other animals. And the reason why we know this is because of the surge in size of the human brain. You know, 2 million years ago, with Homo erectus, the human brain it became much larger and it demanded a much higher quantity of condensed caloric energy. So the only way you can get that caloric energy is if you're eating animal flesh. So somehow we were killing animals and the only way we could have done it was by running them to death.
0: And, and I think your book has really been amazing. Has really kind of gotten into the zeitgeist of kind of American culture about barefoot running and, and new generations of running shoes. Could you talk a few minutes on that?
1: Sure. Well, you know, it's an interesting thing, too, John, because, again, if you sort of went up to space and you looked down at planet Earth, like in the third Sunday of November, and you suddenly saw like 60,000 people running through the streets of New York, you, you'd think there's some kind of like mass panic or some kind of like mass migration. It's, it's an unusual instinct that we have to gather by the tens of thousands to run for three or four hours at a time. I don't think this is a coincidence. You know, there's lots of other things we could be doing on a Sunday afternoon other than running marathons. And I think that really speaks to the fact that this is an instinct we have, that for most of our human existence, this is what we did all the time. So that sort of brings up a contradiction, that if we are designed to run, if we're born to run, if it's our greatest strength, then how is it also our greatest weakness? If we're supposed to be really good at this, then why do we keep breaking down? And I think the reason why is because the reason we're breaking down is because we've tried to rely on gimmicky products with no science behind them to compensate for poor technique. But what people find is when they take their shoes off and start to run the way they did when they were five years old, running around barefoot, they find that they run much differently than they do in shoes. And I believe it's a much more cushioned uh, and much healthier way to run.
0: So have you gotten a lot of pushback from industry since your book has come out?
1: Yeah, it's funny thing. I was braced for pushback. I mean, I have a line in there saying that, you know, running shoes are the most destructive force to ever touch the human foot. And you would think that a shoe company might have something else to say about that. But it's really interesting. I really learned something about American capitalism because the shoe companies didn't respond. They didn't argue at all. They just changed their product lines, and they just said, okay, you want barefoot shoes? We'll make barefoot shoes. And again, taught me a listen. Like they're not in the business of winning arguments with like mouthy journalists. They're in the business of just providing what people are asking for.
0: So, so all these kind of barefoot shoes, have people found that there are, truly are less uh, injuries, or is this just another gimmick?
1: It's um, it's both encouraging and a little bit discouraging at the same time. Because really, what it's about is it has nothing at all to do with what's on your foot whether you're wearing a sock or a combat boot or a pair of Nike Air Vomero's, it doesn't matter. What really matters is how you're moving your foot because if your running form is nicely wired, then you can wear whatever you want. So the good news is that a lot of people were getting the message and really changing their running form. There's this wonderful exercise called the 100 Up, which is essentially just running in place, but you do this 100 Up exercise, and you can find plenty of resources online to show you how. You can learn perfect running form in an afternoon. So that's the good news. The bad news is a lot of other people haven't been bothering to change their form. They've just been changing their shoes. They've been buying a different shoe. And those people are actually having problems. They're getting stress fractures and other injuries because they're running in less shoe the same way they did in in bigger shoes.
0: So in the finale of your book, you talk about the race through the Copper Canyons of the elite U.S. marathoners uh, running against the Tara Umara. And And I think it's just, to me, what really stood out is all the characters are all something out of central casting is that that, that it, they almost don't seem like real people because they're all so colorful. Um, you know, I, I would think just the overwhelming beauty of the race, but, but just kind of how interesting everyone was.
1: Yeah. It is a thing when you're, or journalists working on an assignment, you have this kind of split mind mentality of like, oh my god, this is such a pain in the butt. These people drive me crazy. There's this, you know, drunk surfer passed out in my bathtub. And uh, when you're in the moment, it's an irritation. Later on, when you're home and opening your notebooks and starting to work, you are thanking the stars above that they were there because they are what your story is all about. So, yeah, Jen and Billy and Barefoot Ted. uh, And the funny thing is, it's now been a few years since that race, and it's very reassuring to me that they're exactly the same now as they were back then.
0: Is the race still going on?
1: Yeah, it's a wonderful thing. I think a real validation of Caballo Blanco's uh, vision is that that year he put the race on for us, I thought, man, there's no way anybody's going to show up for this thing. I thought I was going to be the only one there. And so I was pretty shocked when seven... American runners, and 20 Tarahumada showed up. So we had 27 runners. Since then, that race has skyrocketed. Um, And last year, there were 400 runners, 300 Tarahumada and 100 runners from uh, elsewhere around the world. And, you know, unfortunately, Caballo uh, passed away. The the white horse who created the race, He, he passed away a year and a half ago. But his girlfriend has done just a sensational job of keeping the race alive.
0: So, for you personally, you know, I would imagine that you said, "I'm going to write a book about uh, tribal Indians running, and you know, I'm going to read it, and maybe my mother will read it." And and it's and it's become this such an overwhelming success, how surprising was that to you?
1: You know, to be honest, um, and I think I, I, I'm always a half gla- glass half full kind of guy. As I was working on, I kept thinking, you know, if I the only one who can mess this up is me. The material is so good and it's so important. If I could just bring this sucker in for a landing, then I think a lot of people are going to want to read it because I had a feeling that there was this big ground swell already in motion and I wasn't creating the wave. I was surfing it. You know, The wave was already building. And when you start to become familiar with ultramarathoners and barefoot runners and minimalist runners and natural movement people, you realize that lots of people were all kind of circling this idea from different directions. So uh, I just felt like this was a natural force already in motion, and I just had to get a hold of it. So I had, again, I had a feeling, I thought, boy, if you can do a decent book out of this material, then people are going to want to read it.
0: Have they ever talked about making this into a movie?
1: Yeah, it's, it's actually in the works as we speak. Um, they're working on scripts. There's a production company involved. And with with luck, knock wood, it could be filming uh, within the
0: year. That's great. Thank you so much for being on the show. It's a, it's a wonderful book. And uh, Chris, uh, Chris McDougall for Born to Run. John, thanks a lot. Those were great questions. I really appreciate the conversation. This is Dr. John Russell. If you missed any of this discussion and want to hear other programs in this series, please visit ReachMD.com where you can download the podcast and learn more about this series. Thanks for listening.